Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Today I don't feel like doing anything. I just want to lay in my bed. Don't feel like picking up my phone. So leave a message at the tone. Because today I swear I'm not doing anything. I'm gonna kick my feet up then stare at the fan turn the TV on throw my hand in my I don't know if that's an actual ukulele but it sounds suspiciously like a ukulele and as we will find in this first segment if you want to portray yourself as an idler a ukulele is a vital piece of equipment all right that's Bruno Mars by the way today's show is about leisure or as our first guest will probably want to say leisure um, you know I, I think about Walt Whitman In possibly his greatest poem, Song of Myself, he begins by saying, I celebrate myself and sing myself and what I assume you shall assume. For every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. I loaf and invite my soul. I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a spear of summer grass. Well, you can't get... You can't get more idle or leisurely than that, or leisurely uh, than that. Uh, That could be a great American proclamation. But, of course, it kind of bumps up against so-called Protestant work ethic. And I think we see that a lot, this kind of double-edged attitude towards leisure. I mean, yeah, we love Bertie Wooster and all those other really great British literary idlers, Saki, alias H.H. Monroe has Clovis. I think he has some birdies, too. Birdie is apparently a good name uh, for idlers. You know, Baudelaire gives us the flaneur, the, the person who does the kind of purposeless walking uh, for no reason. Ambling probably is a better word. We love all that stuff, but I think we kind of outsource it a bit. I'm not sure we do it. <laughs> We just like it. We like the idea of it. So we're going to, uh, in fact, run our thumb down that knife's edge today uh, in a lot of different ways. We will begin with Tom Hodgkinson, uh, the founder of Idler Magazine and the author of many books, including How to Be Idle and an Idler's Manual. Uh, He is with us now. Uh, Welcome, Tom. Hello. I have this ominous feeling based on the sound check that we're interrupting your holiday, which seems very (laughs) counterproductive somehow. Well, yes. I mean, I, I was just about to go and open my first beer and sit on the balcony. Um, <laughs> and then I remembered that I had to come and do your Zoom thing. But no, thanks very much for letting me come on the show. I, I'm on holiday in um, uh, an island in Croatia called Portula, which is a sort of, it was owned by, by Venice. It's, it's, it's a Ven- Venetian medieval city-state. Um, and we're living in a sort of flat just behind the main church. So if, the, if you hear church bells, that's what's going on. Well, that will be just lovely if we do. All right. I, I think maybe we do, be, particularly because of your, your, your background and what you're kind of famous for, need to explore whether or not there's a meaningful distinction between leisure slash leisure uh, and idling or idleness. They're not quite the same thing, are they? Well, I think in the modern world, uh, Leisure is a little bit mixed up with something like leisure studies as a university course or, you know, the leisure centre, which is somewhere 
you, know, you, you pay someone to do something that isn't related to your money earning uh, job, you know. Um, so in a sense, leisure has become part of the same system as the job system, which is that you spend a lot of money when you're not at work. So at work, you're earning the money or uh, or paying off the money that you spent uh, last week. Um, and then when you leave the the gates, if you like, of the of, of your employment, um, you are then sort of courted as a, as a consumer and uh, it's time to start spending money. I mean, for me, idling is something, it, it, you know, it's more romantic. Um, it's something that you that you yourself would choose to do. Uh, and I think it's a lovely word, you know, and what I'm trying to do, what I've been trying to do for quite a long time now, about 30 years actually, um, is to sort of bring out all the positive sides of idling. You know, it's generally seen as a pejorative term. If you were, if you were to read Benjamin Franklin, who's the sort of, you know, one of the, he's really at one, of, one of the sort of foundation stones of the modern American work ethic, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy and wise. He's very anti-idling. Uh, he, he says he should always be, at least be seen to be working hard. Um, and, uh, you know, today Silicon Valley is very anti-idling. They, they promote an idea where, you know, you, you, you do these ridiculously long days um, in the service of, uh, I don't know, what, earning more money. Um, so idling, what I'm trying to say with the word idle, which I think is a lovely word, is, you know, there's lots of really good things about idling. It doesn't mean giving up. It doesn't mean... Uh, letting down your colleagues it means embracing the the joys of doing nothing um not only for your physical health but your mental and your spiritual health as well you know when you work too hard you get ill people get mentally ill you know if they're in the wrong job and they're they're stressed out and they're working too hard they get physically ill they start taking things like oxycontin you know not now but you know that was a thing um to help them get through the day uh, and you know, and, and they're not feeding their spirits either. So we used to have religion can do that for people, sure. Um, but as you, you mentioned, the Protestant work ethic, there was a new form of sort of Christianity that swept through the world. Um, you know, 16th century, 17th century onwards, which again is at the foundation of the American work ethic, which was Puritanism uh, and, and and the Protestant work ethic. So I'm I'm really just I'm trying to rebel against that, but also I'm trying to bring back in, in a way an older idea, which is which the Greek philosophers loved, which is that you know leisure, they called it leisure actually, uh, but their word for it was skole. So if we're talking about the different words for the same thing, and skole turned into our word for school by the Latin, but in those days it meant the stuff that you did by choice when you weren't working, um, and for them that really should be philosophizing you know, sharing a meal with friends, drinking wine, going for a walk, talking about ideas. And I think it's those sorts of things that uh, there's a, a grave danger we don't make enough time for in the modern world because of the work ethic. And so idling is a, is a kind of resistance uh, to this sort of pressure to be always working. And I'm saying don't feel guilty about it. Feel guilty about overworking <laughs> um, and embrace idling and, you know, look after your soul. All right, so I just want to interject that now, if I don't hear church bells, I'm going to be really disappointed. But um, <laughs> so ringing, I promised they were ringing really loudly earlier. <laughs> so, um, starting around March of 2020, Britain suddenly 
looked a lot more Hodgkinsonian than Britain typically looked because yeah. the government was actually ordering people not to work uh, and, and not to go places and not to book flights and, and not to do all the kinds of things that constitute modern frenetic activity. So as you gazed around you at that time, uh, was that pleasant to your eyes to see, I don't know, fewer people on the road, people, fewer people hurrying around? It really was actually, and um, it, it was strange that it came through this uh, this route. I mean, a friend of mine emailed me and said, um, "One little virus has done more for your cause than your thirty years of publishing magazines and books." You know, in about ten minutes. And as you say, this is an amazing time when governments, which in general governments are very pro work ethic, and you know, the government here has the phrase "hard working families," which I hate, which is like you know. Uh, with, with we help hard-working families or well, even granny and the three-year-old are they working hard as well um so yeah it was very strange to be told by the authorities to slow down to stop working you know it's your, it's your kind of uh it's your duty to society to stop working which is the opposite of what they what they normally say and um you know yes a lot of people found lockdowns really tough it was very tough for people with young families it was very tough for people who lived on their own in general uh, my mother lives on her own. She found the whole thing incredibly depressing. She's not really an idler either. Mm-hmm. But well, for a lot of people, it was, you know, yeah, it was, it opened up a different way of doing it. You don't need to be so busy. We didn't need so much money. You know, <laughs> you, there was nothing to spend money on. And, and our readers said, you know, I feel guilty, but I love lockdown. It's great. I don't, there's no pressure. Um, I'm not spending anything. Uh, I've got all this time. You know, as a family, we we live in London. You know, London was beautiful. It was very sunny. Uh, we went on our bicycles, we cycled along the River Thames, we had picnics and, you know, I remember going out to the river um, one evening with my family cycling and there were lots of other families and people having a lovely time in the sun outdoors. I remember thinking, you know, we're told this is a nightmare, but this looks like paradise. <laughs> well, yes, and there's almost also the sense that the planet wants us to be a little more idle. You know, the pollution abated somewhat, the traffic jams abated, animals started coming out into places and spaces that they they maybe wouldn't feel safe uh, at times when we were all racing about. So there was almost the sense that, oh, you want to do something about climate change? You want to do something for the planet? Do less. Absolutely. And there were there were famous charts at the time, weren't there, of um, pollution over China, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can't remember exactly, but yeah, they, they do these lovely charts that the darker blue meant more polluted. And they showed how that the pollution had just sort of lifted. It was really extraordinary, actually. Um, and again, you know, uh, people, what, what's one of our main problems in the world? It's, it's oil. You know, we, we're so dependent on oil, oil is polluting. Um, it's right at the heart of the entire world's economy, more or less. You know, we can't do without it. But just briefly, you know, for a few months, people use much less oil. Um, and, you know, and, and I would like to have seen a little bit more uh, positive reaction from ecological campaigners yeah. about it. So there's, um, there's, there's also an aspect of the virus itself, too, which was it, it kind of had the same agenda, so to speak, in the sense that, and and I was much more aware, I think, of, of the ongoing medical research uh, than an awful lot of other people. So when, when people that I knew would get COVID, I would say, you cannot push through this. This virus does not like people who try to push through their illness. You really have to rest. You have to do as close to nothing as possible if you want to get well. You're courting disaster uh, if you just 
try some. I mean, that that's sort of the very much an American idea. I'm going to push through this thing. I'm going to just keep doing my stuff. Uh, and it's almost as if the virus was trying to send us individually the same message. No, 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 no. Don't do that. That's exactly right. I mean, and I remember reading, um, there's a great journalist called Barbara Ehrenreich, who you might be aware yeah. of. And she, she, she went underground uh, working as um, a cleaner in one of her books. Yeah, Nickled and Dimed, I think. So. That's right, yeah. yeah. What a great book. Um, and uh, there's a really horrifying bit, bit in that where her boss, uh, someone, one of the cleaners complains about having a headache or being sick. And the boss says, listen, when I have a headache, I just take a couple of Advil and fight my way through it. And I think actually, you know, it's quite a serious point because that's something like what was happening with OxyContin too, because people who were, had you know, really badly damaged their bodies and were in a lot of physical pain, well, they should have been given time off to recover. What they said they were given was heroin, um, which dulled the pain and they went back into work. And I think that can happen with antidepressants too. That's a whole other issue, you know. Um, but yeah, it, it, that, that, that really happened. And, and I think actually about, I think that about mild illness in general, Mm. Um, yes, I'm. You know, I'm well aware that uh, you know I, I'm not trying to minimise the, the fact that millions of people were killed um, who shouldn't have been, you know, uh, by COVID. But also, as you say, you know, I mean, I, I had it a few months ago. I was in bed for ten days. It wasn't that bad. I mean, you know, I, I read a, I read the entire. Well, I read every single Sherlock Holmes story, <laughs> um, and I slept a lot, and I didn't drink for ten days. And I, you know, maybe I needed a rest. Um, you know, so illness illness can be a way of certainly of uh, you know it's certainly the case with me, and it's very common. You know, if you've been overdoing it a little in some way, then your body will just kind of tell you, okay, slow down, stop. So there may be something in your theory, Colin, that you know the uh, the, the virus was saying to the entire world, um, you know, something's going a bit wrong here. It's good, and and I you know when when the what do you call them, the leaders, the owners of everything, say you know well we'll we'll soon be getting back to normal. I think I was one of those people who said, "No, we don't want to go back." To exactly, normal. normal is very overrated. So I'm going to play a, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to play a clip for you. Uh, this is from the series The Crown. Uh, we are going to uh, hear Olivia Colman as uh, Queen Elizabeth and Gillian uh, Anderson as Margaret Thatcher. They're out at Balmoral, and as we know, uh, the Windsors they love uh, stalking stags uh, out in the pouring rain and shooting guns at birds. And uh, I mean, and this is sort of how they recreate, so to speak. Uh, and so uh, they are attempting to have Margaret Thatcher kind of hang along with them. So the Queen uh, and the PM are uh, in some kind of Range Rover together, rumbling across a rainy and dank countryside. And here's how things go. I'm so glad you agreed to join us. I didn't have you down as a sportswoman. I'm not, ma'am. I'm afraid we're all mad stalkers. It was how I spent some of the happiest times with my father, King George. He taught me everything. Oh, my father taught me a great deal, too. Hey, what did you do together? We worked. Work was our play. I worked with him in our shop. As an alderman, he took me everywhere. I watched as he wrote his speeches and listened as he rehearsed and delivered them. It was my political baptism. How lovely for you, both. Yes. So, um, <laughs> so th- th- they're both. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. But I have been haunted ever since seeing that by by Anderson's speech as Thatcher when she says, "We worked, 
work was our play. I mean, they're both mad in different ways. I mean, the Windsors are insane, uh, you know, playing idiotic parlor games and racing around shooting at things. Uh, but, but and, and yeah, I think of Oscar Wilde, who talked about fox hunting as, what, the unspeakable in pursuit of the inedible. Uh, but, um, but Thatcher's mad, too. I mean, she's got this kind of Tory Protestant work ethic thing that seems so incredibly joyless. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about, I mean, there's, those are two different reactions to leisure. I'm not sure, or leisure, I'm not sure either one of them is entirely healthy. There, there is, I do find something quite attractive about the aristocratic sort of disdain for work because um, <laughs> they, they're so snobbish. They kind of look down on people who work. Um, oh, well, how lovely that you, 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 you enjoyed your work um, because, of course, they don't work. Why don't they work? Because some absolute, you know, bloodthirsty, amoral, you know, uh, evil person of the highest order 300 years ago killed a lot of people and stole a lot of money. Um, and so now they're rich, so they don't have to work. But they're still, you know, but the, the aristocrats, they, 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 they have a history of being patrons of the arts. Um, they, they may have a slightly broader view of the world, actually. You know, and I think sometimes they've, they've got more in common with working class people. Working class people don't enjoy working. They, they, you know, <laughs> if you won the lottery, you're not going to carry on being a coal miner. You know, so this idea that the middle class people have is like, oh, well, he loved being a coal miner. It gave him a lot of nobility. It's, it's ridiculous. They, you know, they're doing it for the money. And um, so, But there's that middle thing, which is like life is all about hard work and getting up early and work, work, work. You know, um, which, yes, as you say, Mrs. Thatcher thoroughly represented. And, and that's why, as I said, we would be um, sort of broadly anti-Tory because the, the Tories do promote this work ethic. But the left wing promotes it too. You know, uh, Lenin, Marx, you know, uh, <laughs> you know the, the Chinese state, they're also very, very into hard, hard, hard work. It's just it's for the state, not for the big company. That's the only difference. And so uh, so sometimes the, the, the aristocrats can have a kind of slightly different view of things. Um, and maybe they have got time for the good things in life. Uh, as Again, you mentioned Oscar Wilde. Well, he was very much an idler, you know, he said that people should have much more time to study philosophy and to sort of be creative and to be artistic and to, to talk and to think and to do useless stuff, you know. Um, right. And like read a poem, you know, um, uh, because it's sort of fun and it feeds something else and not just be working for the man 24-7. Right. Wilde also uh, was great on, on the distinction you just made right before that. Uh, he has a line, I think it's in Dorian Gray, where he says, the rich would have spoken on the value of thrift and the idle grown eloquent over the dignity of labor. Um, so work is fine when somebody else is doing it. Um, so one last thing I want to explore with you, and then I, I absolutely insist that you get back to your holiday. Um, but but And that is the notion of creativity. Um and I don't know, the Chinese philosopher Lin Yutang and the importance of living, he says, from the Chinese point of view, the man who is wisely idle is the most cultured man, for there seems to be a philosophic contradiction between being busy and being wise. Uh, but there's also, I think, if you're going to be fully creative, there has to be a 
there have to be moments of kind of uselessness, right? There have to be moments where your mind isn't being asked to do some specific thing. If I mean, you know, Flaubert supposedly just kind of rode all the time and didn't go on picnics because he had to move his semicolon around or something. But you also get the feeling that Flaubert's mind would be idle and range around a bit too. And maybe you could say a little bit about this. Creativity is something that you've thought a lot about. I assume you you would think that, no, you can't be purely creative if you already have something to do. Yeah, the, the the title of the magazine comes from one of my literary heroes, Dr. Johnson, um, who, in case your listeners don't know about him, I mean, he was uh, very well known in the 18th century, and he uh, he wrote he wrote the first English dictionary. He was quite productive, very productive. He wrote plays and novels. He was friends with David Garrick, um, with Adam Smith, and all, all the great uh, thinkers of the day. Um, he uh, he praised idling and. You know, he spent a lot of time really just like lying in bed, staring at the ceiling. So it looks lazy, but it's not lazy because the work is going on at some other level, you know. Um, so I maintain, and it's not just for people who are sort of obviously created from the outside, like people who make a living from their art, which is, you know, a difficult thing to do. It's also for entrepreneurs, businessmen, anybody, doctors and nurses, you know, it's, it's actually when you're switched off that you, you get ideas for improving, and scientists who are very creative, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just sit there all day in the same position, work, working, working, working. You need to go for a walk. You need to sleep. You need to, you know, Dickens actually, I mean, he was a powerhouse. But he went for these really long walks every day, you know, um, for like two, three, four hours. Uh, and and to, to give his mind a chance to kind of float it, to, to give his mind a chance to float. I also think actually about the Beatles, um, very productive. <laughs> uh, they did, Mrs. Thatcher said, our work was our play, but, you know, theirs really was. Um, and uh, if you've seen that recent documentary, Get Back, I mean, it's really fascinating about their, you know, they're, they're quite disciplined. They work from about 10 to 6 in the studio, but they really muck about yes. all day and let things happen and try things out. And then one thing leads to another and, uh, uh, you know, uh, artists tell you that a misremembered, a misheard phrase might turn into a title of a song. Um, so you've got to allow yourself, uh, if you want to be creative, a lot of that just, 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 just idling, pottering time, you know, just let the ideas come into your head almost like they're sort of put there by an outside force. All right, we have to pause there. We didn't get any church bells. I feel very cheated, but Tom Hodgkinson has a holiday to get back to, the founder of Idler Magazine and the author of multiple books, including How to Be Idle and an Idler's Manual. Uh, We will be back after this. And that's the way it's always going to be. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. 
ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. What a day for a daydream. What a day for a daydreaming boy And I'm lost in a daydream Dreaming about my bundle of joy And even if time ain't really on my side It's one of those days for taking a walk outside I'm blowing the day to take a walk in the sun And follow my face So while I was talking to Tom, I had a flashback not just something that I actually experienced, but a flashback to the uh, earliest stirrings of Ted Kennedy's political career. This may be an apocryphal story, but supposedly he was debating his first political opponent uh, in some public forum. And at one point, his opponent said, and what's more, my opponent, Mr. Kennedy, has never worked a day in his life. He's never had a real job. He's never done real work for a day in his life. And, and Teddy at that point seemed flustered and at a loss for words. Uh, and when the debate was over, supposedly, uh, an Irish immigrant working man came up to him and slapped him in the back and said, don't worry about it, Teddy. You haven't missed a thing. Um, so there's sort of, once again, that kind of idea that people valorize working all the time. They are often not the ones who are really doing the hard work. So we are talking today on this show about leisure. I think I can go back to saying leisure now. Uh, and joining us uh, is Celine Malkoch, uh, a behavioral scientist and professor of marketing at the Fisher College of Business at Ohio State University. She studies how and why and when people decide to allocate their time to leisure activities. So first of all, welcome to our show. Hi, good to be here. So, you know, in 1899, Thorsten Veblen publishes his landmark theory of the leisure class, and he kind of argues that conspicuous leisure is a major socioeconomic status marker. And I'm kind of wondering whether that's been inverted. I feel as though we live in a world now where people signal their virtue and signal their high status by telling everybody else how busy they are, how impossible it would be for them to experience leisure. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I can. And, and I can start by saying you're right on. Uh, it has indeed been uh, inverted entirely, so much so that a recent paper that came out shows that uh, busyness, uh, just being busy with life, period, it has become one of the biggest symbols of status in today's life, especially in the U.S., Right. It's sort of, and it is, if a person portrays himself as busy, I'm busy. I don't, I can't schedule you. I can't schedule this. I'm overscheduled. You're kind of doing a supply and demand thing with yourself, right? You're saying there's less supply of me than there is demand for me. I'm, I'm so busy. And, and that, you know, inherently kind of economically increases your value, right? That, that is part of the point that, you know, signaling to the others that I'm in demand, I go, I must be a valuable person. That's uh, one of the logics of it. And I think the other part uh, that this particular paper showed was it is a belief that there is upward mobility and the more busy that I am, 
the more hard worker I am, ergo, I've got a higher chance of actually climbing up to the ladder. But the only way that I can do it is to signal to everyone around me that I'm worthy of that climbing up. Right. Um, so, Kat, we're going to play B2 here, actually. I'm going to play for you. This is a commercial from 2014 for a particular model of Cadillac. Uh, and I don't know what, what the guy says from there will be pretty self-explanatory. Why do we work so hard? For what? For this? For stuff? Other countries, they work, they stroll home, they stop by the cafe, they take August off. Off. Why aren't you like that? Why aren't we like that? Because we're crazy, driven, hardworking believers, that's why. Those other countries think we're nuts. Whatever. We're the Wright brothers insane? Bill Gates, Les Paul, Ali. Were we nuts when we pointed to the moon? That's right. We went up there, you know what we got? Bored. So we left. Got a car up there, left the keys in it. Do you know why? Because we're the only ones going back up there, that's why. But I digress. It's pretty simple. You work hard, you create your own luck, and you gotta believe anything is possible. As for all the stuff, that's the upside of only taking two weeks off in August. Nespa? All right, Celine, you could probably teach an entire uh, episode of your class uh, <laughs> on that commercial. There's so much in there. I mean, he slides out the idea initially of other countries where leisure is valued more, where there's kind of a, a sense of roundedness. And then he just smashes it to bits. Once again, this seems to be uh, perhaps a is it a peculiarly American attitude or would we run into this in other countries? I, I don't want to single out the U.S. entirely. Uh, because I think uh, when we look at other cultures, which we have in some of our studies, we do find similar attitudes existing elsewhere, but it is definitely uh, more common and more accepted uh, in U.S. that we take this as a value to be gone by, as opposed to some people supporting this belief and others having others. So let's talk a little bit about how we, uh, with, I, I, actually, what are the things that was in that commercial that I thought was very interesting? He said, at one point he says, we went to the moon, and you know what? We got bored, so we came back. Well, that's not literally true, but I think, and I think you've maybe even run into this a little bit in your own life, going to the beach with your husband, uh, that there's this notion that if we're not doing something, if we're not filling yep. our time with activities, we'll be bored, uh, and that's not good. Yeah, it, it's almost like the uh, flip side of what Tom was talking about a minute ago in your earlier segment, mm -hmm. where we, in U.S. especially, became extremely uncomfortable with being idle. Idleness uh, gained this negative connotation where it is the opposite of business. And it's more than the opposite of the business. It's like the antithesis of business, where if you're idle, we must not be achieving anything. We might not be worthy of being. We are not even worthy of breathing if you are being idle, right? There is this like belief that we have to be constantly achieving something, being productive, uh, going towards something, or else we are just sitting still and that's not a good thing. Uh, clearly, it is an overstatement. Uh, it is an exaggeration in many ways because we can be productive, we can be unproductive, and we can just be neither productive or unproductive, right? And I think uh, that was the beauty of what Tom was talking about, that there's this point of where we can be idle, but not in a negative way. And I think the example that you're giving about going to moon and getting bored is just totally underlining that uh, skewed belief in the U.S. So there's another problem, right, which is that leisure has become 
what some people call leaky, uh, in the sense that when we even attempt, if that's the right word, to engage in leisure, to to, to slow down, to to have recreation, maybe even to be idle, we're usually accompanied by this thing in our pockets or in our hands that's a computer that's connected to everybody else in the world. Uh, <laughs> and and so, I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about the near impossibility, at least for some people, of kind of just emptying out and, and having something that's a pure experience that won't be invaded or or maybe even volitionally released by the user themselves uh, because uh, we're just connected all the time. Yeah, and I think there's like multiple pieces to what you just said. So there's the part where do we even want to be isolated from all of that and just enjoy what we're doing without disruption? I think a lot of people will say that they don't want to be. Uh, so the intent isn't there in the first place. We don't want to be left out. This fear of missing out is just like a big phenomenon that is just not leaving us. What if I get that you know Instagram message that I'm going to be missing and it's going to show me that amazing thing? What if my boss is asking me to do something? What if my kids are trying to reach me? Whatever it might be, we actually don't want to be not interrupted. We just value what is not here and now too much to let here and now just be. But the second part is even if you wanted to, uh, it is very difficult to get away from it, but it, because it requires an active behavior from us to turn things off. The default is to actually everything to be interfering all the time. And of course, when there is interference, there is no way that we're going to get into uh, what the psychologist would call this state of flow. Just like be in the moment, mindful, uh, totally uh, immersed into the moment and enjoying it and actually getting all the benefits of leisure that we think is basically what we are doing it for. But achieving that moment of flow re, uh, involves releasing control a little bit. And, and I think we're, we're all inherently, particularly Americans, are control freaks. I think you found this, uh, and maybe on one of your recent visits to Turkey, that, that A, people maybe were a little bit more spontaneous, not every second of the day had to be planned, and that you were coping with being back there and wanting to do a certain number of things and see a certain number of people by planning and scheduling. Yeah, I, I think, uh, as you alluded to, I, I go to Turkey often because I am originally from Turkey, which has a very different leisure culture, culture in general, but especially leisure culture than the United States. And those observations have led me to this research area in the first place. One of the first projects I've done was on scheduling and how the relaxed style of the Turks, maybe to a fault where, you know, a family of five can stop by on your doorstep at 6 p.m. on any Tuesday, and expect you to host them without actually making any uh, prior accommodations for you is an extreme, but it just creates this world of like, we can do anything we want. We can just be spontaneous. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, no harm, no foul. To the way that I do things here, where I schedule my kids' play dates between their you know, sports practices, which is then stuck in between my meetings. These are two extreme lifestyles. And when they clash, as if as it is the case when we go to Turkey, it is really interesting to see how the folks there treat us as we are aliens for wanting to know what time dinner is, for instance, right? This was like one of the earlier experiences where I had, I'm, I'm in Turkey with my then husband. We don't even have kids yet. We spend the day at the beach with my friends and they say, okay, we'll see you for dinner. And my husband, Joe goes, um, what time? And our friends say dinner time. And Joe goes like, I understand, but what time? And they were like, uh, after we go home, get dressed, relax, and head back to dinner. That's dinner time. And Joe kept on insisting on just like, but what is the time on the clock? 
Mm-hmm. And they're like, what do you care? You're on vacation. Right? You're just like going to go home, relax. We'll text you. If you get there earlier than I, you're going to dra- grab a drink before I have dinner. So that uh, stress between the two over time led me to kind of wonder which one is better, like scheduling or not scheduling leisure? Because there's clearly the benefit of scheduling, uh, which is that I get to do it. Because if I don't schedule it, then I'm never able to get to uh, do those particular activities. And we do find that uh, they're both true. Uh, scheduling increases the chances that I'm going to actually do that leisure activity. But it also simultaneously robs some of its joy and enjoyment and benefits away as well, both prospectively, such that we feel like we have to do that leisure activity and it just carries this negative burden of responsibility. But also when we're experiencing it, we tend to be uh, reporting less enjoyment of that activity if we had scheduled it because it came with that baggage in the first place. So I want to also come back to the inversion that we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, because one of the other things that we see these days is, okay, so... Uh, you know, part of the inversion, as we said at the beginning, is that so-called knowledge workers, I don't really like that term, but knowledge workers, they, they tend to have a much well, they have less free time. They want less free time. It's an indication of their importance if they don't have much free time. But it's also kind of interesting that, you know, if you look at the what is now the bottom in that inversion, it, it does appear as though people, I mean, I, I've read studies that in, indicate that uh, lower skilled men, people without a college degree, um, have way more free time. A lot of them are not working, are playing video games, are living with their parents. Um, and and an awful lot of them report a reasonably high level of happiness. And I'm wondering about that, too, whether we've set things up so that by kind of overturning that old idea of the idle rich, uh, there's now the idle not at all rich and, and what the implications of, of that might be. Maybe it's impossible to know what the implications are, but what are your thoughts? I, I mean, I think the implications could be many, but uh, for me, I always connect that to the the great resignation we're also seeing in, in yep. the U.S. right now. I think some people have come to realize, uh, as Tom was saying before me, that, uh, you know, money is not tied to happiness. Uh, maybe chilling and relaxing and being idle and enjoying yourself is indeed tied to happiness. And ergo, there is not as much need to work. And that group of people have also been resigning, not finding their job worthy of the time or the money that they earn, time they give or the money that they earn. So I think that is one implication that we are uh, seeing a lot on clear um, all around in the U.S. I think the second thing of that uh, inversion that's important is those people uh, do not believe that leisure is wasteful. Right? They are lacking that belief that there is some negative connotation that comes with leisure. And we have some work that shows that people who tend to think that leisure is baseball, even if they engage in leisurely activities, they are not able to enjoy them. So that happiness and enjoyment coming from these activities in part relies on the fact that they are not bad. And if you take the knowledge workers or a lot of other people that might not even be workers, I'm sure there's a lot of moms in my neighborhood that are not necessarily working, but keeping themselves busy and priding in it. will also tell you that leisure on its face value is not productive and ergo maybe not that uh, useful, maybe even wasteful. And if that's the case, the little leisure that they're engaging will also not make them happy. So let me ask you one last area here, because this is something that you've studied so much. um, 
And I think there's kind of a sense when we do a show like this one that a lot of people are doing it wrong, doing leisure wrong. What would you say to people in general? What kind of advice would you give to people so that, in fact, they – and maybe this is the wrong way to think about it. I'm, the, I'm about to use the word maximize or optimize, and maybe that's exactly the wrong way to think about leisure. But what's a good way to think about leisure? Um, I think, first of all, I, I like to look at things in terms of like, how do we use our time in general? So I want to start there when I give it that advice, because I think the most important way to look at it is to not maximize the number of things that we're doing, let alone what we're doing or how we're doing it. I think uh, there is this need right now in the U.S. at every age group uh, that I observe of like packing in as many things as possible and thinking that that is the road to happiness or productivity or well-being, whatever the positive adjectives you want to pick. And I think the right way to do that is prioritizing, realizing which one, or at least judging which one of these activities is going to add most to the happiness and enjoyment and relaxation, and which one of them are there just because we didn't want to miss out, but we are not necessarily going to enjoy, enjoy doing. I think that is the first step in trying to really understand uh, the road to like enjoying uh leisure, particularly because once we make that judgment first, then those activities we choose to keep in our lives are going to be more inherently enjoyable. And we're going to be aware that we are really doing it with, for the sake of enjoying. But more importantly, we have given up something else to be able to enjoy them. And that cost actually increases the enjoyment we get out of things because we are you know, keenly aware that this time that I'm doing it say the activity of walking with my husband is not free. I've given up watching show X to be able to actually make a longer walk, more enjoyable walk. And I think that mindfulness that comes with uh, having less activities in the hopes of trying to more of it is probably the most important thing we can do to actually maximize the enjoyment we are um, getting from the activities we choose to do. I think that's just great advice. I do feel as though everybody has said, wow, it's 9 p.m. and I don't know where the day went and I don't, you know, I can't really account for what I did all day. That might not necessarily be a bad thing. I mean, there should be a follow-up question that you ask yourself. Did I enjoy my day? Did I, did I enjoy what I did as time slipped away from me or did time slip away from me in an unpleasant way? Because those are two very different phenomena. Yeah, and I and we find both of those things. I think sometimes when we are don't know where the time went away, that's a good thing, right? You're just doing something so fun that it's just like, oh my God, three hours has passed and this has just been an amazing hike with my friends. But it also happens when we are so engrossed in doing the little things that we don't realize that the time has gone away. And they both have the implication of being immersed, but in very different ways. And I think it also comes down to mindfully doing one thing after the other, as opposed to stopping and, and planning. Right. And I personally have learned over time through my own research, mostly to kind of stop in the middle of the day to kind of take stock of what I'm doing and what I'm going to do, making sure that like I am not uh, locked into the stupid cycle of answering emails one after each other, none of which were that urgent or important, but they took away from the things that I really needed to get done to be able to call that day a day that I achieved the things that I wanted to do. All right. We have to stop there. Celine Balcochi, you've been a wonderful to talk to, behavioral scientist and professor of marketing at the Fisher College of Business in Ohio State University. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll take a quick peek at the future of leisure. Just you 
All right, we have tandem technical producers today. We started out with Cat Pastor. Now Gene Amatruda is in there keeping the beat for us. This is an exciting day for me. A lot of people know that I teach. For the first time ever, one of my students has actually come back and produced or come here uh, and produced a show. That is uh, Ada Uzenlar. She was in my class this past spring at Yale. Uh, she produced this episode with some help from Mr. McPants and uh, Lily Tyson and, and everybody else. So very, very good. Um, all right, we have just a little bit of time here to explore the future. Uh, Ken Roberts is joining us, professor of sociology, social policy, and criminology at the University of Liverpool, who studies leisure. Ken Roberts, welcome to our conversation. Uh, pleasure to be with you. So you've, you've heard a little bit of the conversation so far. Um, obviously, things are going to change. The way we allocate time is going to change. Probably artificial intelligence and robotics uh, will, or at least may, create more free time. So what does the future of leisure look like under those circumstances? Well, the immediate future I can, I can tell you about. Because in Britain, we've come through two years of pandemic and lockdowns, and now we're out of it. And during this period, we've done a series of time use studies and how we're changing, how we use our time is different now than it was three years ago. So first, we are working more. People are spending longer at work, and they've also got more leisure time. Now, where's the leisure time come from? Mainly, it's come from traveling time. <clears throat> People doing more work at home, and they're doing less traveling to and from work. And that time has been spent partly doing more work, at home, and this is mainly by young male managers and professionals, but they've also got more leisure time. So how, how have use of leisure time changed over the past three years, the pandemic years? Right. So, well, so how do people, people yeah, how do people how do people allocate that surplus leisure time? If if they have more leisure yeah, time, well, what are they doing? This, with it? this this is what what is important. Basically, during the pandemic, out of home leisure closed, so people were at home, working or during their free time. So, what did they do? They used the media. So, media use all of them, radio, television, streaming, they all, all increased in terms of the amount of time people spent, spent using them. And since lockdowns have ended, um, time spent with the media has not declined. Mm -hmm. But there's been a big drop in virtually everything else. Visits to theatres, concerts, tourism, meals out, they're all at less than 70% of their levels before the pandemic. 
And this is a problem. I mean, it's a problem for individuals because their mental health declines. If people are at home and just watching the media all the time, I mean, leisure is good for your well-being if people get out of home and interacting with other people. And we're doing less of that. But it also matters for the economy. Now, you know, um, 60 years ago, we had a prime minister called Harold Wilson, who stirred some controversy by entertaining the Beatles in Downing Street. And people said, what the devil are the Beatles doing in Downing Street? And Wilson explained that the Beatles were an important export industry. Now, it didn't matter whether it was the Beatles or some other group, but a large slice of the economy over the past 60 years has been made up of the leisure industries. I mean, the media, they're big, but also hospitality, out of home, eating and drinking, and tourism become possibly the world's biggest single, single industry. Now, if people do less of this, then eventually there's less employment in these industries. Yes. And well, people lose their jobs. And they will have more leisure, but not, not the kind that they want. We're going to have to end there. Ken Roberts is a professor of sociology and social policy and criminology at the University of Liverpool who studies leisure. I do want to sort of end. I'm going to torture Ada uh, by invoking McLuhan, which I do a lot when I'm teaching. So you already had to live through all of this. But I think, you know, one, one thing that a McLuhanist and particularly a modern McLuhanist might say about all this is, and particularly about what Professor Roberts has just been saying, uh, is that, all right, well, I mean— because of virtual reality and because of immersive multiplayer role-playing games, I can socialize. I can interact. I can inter interact with people in China and Indonesia and Africa uh, and South America all in one go playing World of Warcraft or some damn thing. Um, you know, people that I will never meet physically, uh, that's what will happen. I'll stay in my house uh, <laughs> and I'll interact with people all over the place and it it'll be pretty vivid. And the more that virtual reality grows, the more that avatars become uh, a powerful way to interact with people, the more it will seem like human interaction. I feel like that's like a whole other show we have to do at some point is um, will leisure of the future be something like that? And will it be as satisfying or is there something weird about the kind of discorporeal aspect of all this? All right. That's where we have to stop. And that's what we'll do. And we thank you for listening. Mr. Satch and Mr. Cross, we gone fishing instead of just a wishing. Bumble, baby, bumble, baby, bumble, baby. Oh.